Friends, it is a joy to be back in the evening service with you, teaching from the Lord's Word. I have so enjoyed uh, listening to Pastor Darwin's ministry and seeing the Lord use it to grow my own heart and affections for Him. It's also a joy to be able to teach and preach tonight, so if you will, join with me in turning to John 14, verses 1 through 7. Uh, that's for on page 901 of your Pew Bible. I thought uh, with the chance to preach while Pastor Darwin's away, I would share what the Lord had uh, given me the opportunity to preach at our recent uh, RUF uh, meeting a few weeks ago as I filled in for Davis. So, but that's on page 901 of your Pew Bible. If you want to listen to it, you're welcome to, or if you want to read along, you can. Hear now God's word, which says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The grass withers, the flowers fall as we just read, but the word of our God stands forever. Join me in asking his help in interpreting this passage. Gracious Lord, we are so thankful that you have spoken. You have spoken from before the foundations of the world, before human ears could hear it. You have spoken in history and time and place uh, in your word, and you have spoken in our hearts to awaken us to the good news of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as we come tonight, we ask that you would continue speaking to us by this passage of your word. We recognize, Lord, that unless your spirit helps us to interpret and illuminate our hearts as to what we would need uh, to learn from you, uh, that all is not, Lord. There's no point in being here without your spirit's help. And so we thank you that Uh, When we pray according to your will, you are glad to answer and hear us, and we thank you and ask now for your help. Make it clear and help us to draw nearer to you tonight, to tap into the comfort that our Lord and Savior gives his disciples and us in this upper room discourse. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So friends... It's a promise that if you breathe in the same air that a toddler does and you want to see them throw a tantrum of angry emotion or even a sense of felt abandonment, that all you have to do is threaten to leave them, right? Uh, Especially when it comes to what toddlers face uh, when they're around 18 months of age called separation anxiety. For a child at that age, they can't fully understand that um, you are permanent, and when I don't see you, you continue to exist. That's why peekaboo is so fun with kids, because literally when you cover your face, it's so surprising to them 
up until about 18 months, I think. That's when they start to develop that object permanence. Uh, that they really think that you go away. That's fascinating, if you think about it. Uh, but it, uh, it's also it's, it's a fascinating fact that you can use for leverage in your worst parenting moments, uh, which I have been guilty of doing. Still to, the, to this day when I'm flabbergasted enough, I can tell one of my kids, like, do you want to be left when we're about to leave somewhere? And it's a motivation tool to kind of get them going. And uh, it's amazing to watch how it helps children move, move along not because they really think that daddy will leave them, but because there's always this felt sense that it's best to be close to you, and I don't want you to leave me where I am to have to face things by myself. And that sense of abandonment is something that goes deep into the heart of every person in this room. We're afraid to face a world by ourselves. We're afraid to have to navigate life without the felt sense that our God is with us. And that's exactly the same fear that the disciples are feeling in this passage in John 14 tonight. They are hearing that Jesus is about to move on, that he's got a place that he's preparing for them, but they're consumed with their anxiety at his leaving. You can be a Christian for 40 or 50 years and still know that God is providentially in control of the world. But when it comes to feeling by yourself, the thought of feeling abandoned by your Lord touches something deep in our souls. And Jesus is not threatening his disciples to get them moving or to obey like you and I would use that to manipulate small children. But he's actually revealing the truth that his departure has been planned. And if he does not depart, he, it will not be for their benefit. And because of that, there's incredible trouble in their hearts. Jesus gives us words that are more than just intellectual truth to describe his identity in this passage. The, you know, the famous I am statement in, John, in verse 6, we kind of quote that. Uh, in this propositional way, like Jesus said, he's the only way to God, so therefore that solves the problem. But oftentimes we can quote that in a way that divorces it from the comforting context in which Jesus is speaking it. And I want to look at that I am statement tonight, but in the context of the comfort that Jesus is trying to give to his disciples. And the main idea is that uh, if we're ever going to live at rest in our Savior's felt absence, then we must live on the full comfort we can derive from His identity. If we're ever going to live at rest in our Savior's felt absence, then we must live on the full comfort that we can derive from His identity. And that's our two points tonight. Jesus' felt absence and their anxiousness. So the anxious fear of Jesus' felt absence and the comfort that He gives them through their identity. So the felt absence and the full comfort. Now, when you come to this passage in the Upper Room Discourse, it's one of my favorite parts of Scripture because it so directly addresses the attitudes of the disciples. They have been trying to understand for quite some time who Jesus is and what His ministry is about. And it's, it's a holiday feast that they're about to come and celebrate. If you go back and you read John 13, it's Passover. And like yours and my holiday feasts that are just around the corner, uh, things aren't going quite as planned, and everyone's a little bit anxious about it. 
The disciples have been having a really bad day with Jesus, if you think about it. They, they're really, uh, they are facing a source of trouble. This passage starts off by Jesus addressing the trouble that's in their hearts. And that word for trouble in the original languages is, is the, just the stirring unsettledness of heart that comes from their anxiousness. There's anxious trouble in the room. And uh, it's into this meal, this holiday meal, that that anxious trouble invades. Because Jesus has been telling them uh, for quite some time, actually, that he's going to leave them. But something changes in chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, they go to celebrate the Passover, which is the Passover before Good Friday. And uh, Jesus begins to make them troubled by actually embarrassing the disciples. That's the first sense of trouble that they feel. They're embarrassed. Because here's the master who should have had his feet washed by every other disciple in the room. And Jesus makes a point uh, that after the meal, he rises from uh, that meal and clothes uh, himself in in, uh, a, a towel, essentially, and goes and washes all the disciples' feet. They were so embarrassed that when Jesus got to Peter... Peter was like, no, Lord, this isn't, this isn't appropriate. Like, you're not supposed to do this. Like, Jesus was violating all forms of social convention, and they're really embarrassed by it. And um, they were so entitled that they're ashamed that their master is serving them, and they're disoriented that he's actually trying to teach them something through this point he's trying to make. John, even the author of the gospel, says, Jesus, knowing his hour had come to depart... Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And after supper, he rose from it, laid aside his outer garments, and then washes their feet. All power has been entrusted to Jesus, according to John. All authority, he knows where he's going. And he uses it to prove a point about laying down uh, his rights and what he should have been entitled to as a teacher to wash his disciples' feet. And so they're embarrassed by that. Like, there's an extreme sense of shame that they would have been feeling. But they're also confused and perplexed because they get the news during that meal in John 13 that one of them is going to betray Jesus. They're, They're so confused and disoriented by this that when Jesus literally takes the money bag and, hand, and says, hey, it's, or the plate, and says, he who dips his hand in the dish with me, or who I give this piece of bread to, depending on which gospel you read, they can't pick up on the fact that Jesus just passed off the betrayal bread to Judas. And they're like, who is it, Lord? And Jesus literally handed it to Judas. <laughs> they, they, there's no Captain Obvious in the room saying, like, oh, is it Judas? Like, they're totally confused and disoriented by the news that's just been dropped on them because they know that one of them is going to betray Jesus now. And they instantly start wondering, is it me? Is it, is it, is it this person? Is it that person? So much so that, that Jesus can tell Judas, like, what you need to do, leave the room and go and do it quickly. They think Jesus is sending Judas out for some sort of possible last preparation of the Passover. And they are so confused and perplexed and they're anxious. Finally, in the end of chapter 13, he tells them, fellas, I'm leaving. And so they've already felt a sense of like, you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do. One of you is actually going to betray me. 
and I'm going to leave. I don't think Jesus is in any way saying this vindictively. But I, I have a hard time thinking that the disciples may not have heard it that way. Like, you guys have messed up. And even though we had this great kingdom that I was proclaiming, I'm just, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna rest a while, and I'm going to leave. We're going to let things settle, fellas. Um, and he's saying, you cannot come with me. Even when Peter has this impassioned plea, like, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. Jesus is like, Peter, buddy, you're not going to make it till this, the, the rooster crows the third time in tonight. They are so embarrassed. They're so grieved. They have this gnawing sense of anxiousness that Jesus sniffs out. And it makes you wonder. He starts by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. It makes you wonder, why don't they hear the comfort that Jesus is going to give? Because he's going to go through all three chapters of John 14, 15, and 16. And then there's still going to be the guys who fall asleep waiting for Jesus in the garden. They're still going to be confused when his resurrection comes. And it would be really easy for you and I to sort of whitewash this behind the fact that their eyes were not yet open spiritually. I think that's absolutely true, but I think the story is a little bit more complex than that. And the story is really that they're so confused and they don't get Jesus because they're so anxious, even though they've been following him for the last three and a half years. Think about what they were hearing when it felt like Jesus was saying, fellas, it's over. I'm going away and you can't come with me. They have just sacrificed three and a half years of their life based on the hope that this was the promised Messiah who was now bringing the kingdom to bear. They had a false understanding, though, of his identity, and all of their anxiousness came from the false expectations about who Jesus was. His person was fundamentally cloudy to him, even though they could get a lot of things right about Jesus. Think about uh, in the ancient Near East, like it was not uncommon for people to claim to be a Messiah. There were all kinds of uprisings and revolts in the first century of people claiming to be very much that kind of person. And the disciples, when the Passover comes, they, they've spent a, a week under the tension that the Pharisees are trying to now plot openly, not just to kill Jesus, but if you go back and read John 11, to kill Lazarus as well because he was raised from the dead. So they can read the writing on the wall, and it seems like going into this meal, like this would be the perfect time for Jesus to plant the flag and to start the kingdom. Then Jesus totally makes them confused. Because they have a fundamentally cloudy understanding of Jesus' identity. You know, similarly, we can think we have such a good grasp on who Jesus is when what's really true is we're actually holding on to a false picture of who we think Jesus is that's more informed by our anxiousness. So many times we can think we have a good grasp on the truth of who Jesus is when really our understanding of who Jesus is is more informed by a false picture of who Jesus is that's driven by our anxiousness. For example, have you ever been so afraid of something in your faith in the Lord, you're naturally drawn to the way that Jesus promises to resolve it, to, to resolve the fear that you're drawn to? That's not bad. Jesus meets us in this sense of felt needs that we all carry. Think about it. If you were someone who came from a faith background where 
You've got a really difficult family life, and you hear that Jesus adopts you into the family of God. That's not a bad thing. Jesus meets you and adopts you into the family of God. That's true. But sometimes what we think he accomplishes and what we think it helps us to avoid in life in terms of avoiding suffering and trial is really not a realistic picture of what it means to belong to Jesus. We can think that Jesus helps us to belong to God's family and adopts us as his children and maybe it means we'll never be alone again and never has to have to face life fundamentally by ourselves again. Or we can think that Jesus is the one who gives us power to, to overcome sin through his death and resurrection on the cross. And that's absolutely true. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we might translate that into a belief that we'll never struggle with sin again once we come to know Jesus. We can have these faults and misinformed pictures of who Jesus is that are only part of the story. The same thing happened to the disciples. Consider the expectations that surrounded the Messiah if you were a Jew in the first century. These were people who had known humiliation for over 430 years when they were carried away into exile. And they were left there for 70 years. And then God finally brought them back and they thought, oh, he's going to make us his people again. But then there was no prophet that came for another 430 years until John was born. Think about the feeling of abandonment that would have informed them. Their hope had almost been extinguished as they wondered where God was, whether God was going to be true to his purposes for them. When John appears, Jesus clearly begins to promise that he is that prophesied Messiah, but in Jewish expectation, they thought there's no separation between Jesus' ministry of mercy and his ministry of final victory. And they misunderstood that Jesus was going to be a conquer king, conquering king the first time he came, even as he was mercifully the one sent by God to do so. They thought that the Messiah would come he would overthrow their Roman captors, and he would finally vindicate God's people by setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. True story, that's what the Messiah is going to do. But they forgot to be sensitive to how God spoke about who that Messiah was because they were driven by their anxiousness. And it's interesting to note the way that, that, that anxiety and fear show up throughout the disciples' ministry. Sometimes it shows up that these guys are totally scared because they don't understand who Jesus is. In Mark 4, when they're on the Sea of Galilee and the seas literally got the boat doing all sorts of up and down movements. And it's about to capsize. The disciples are in the middle of this squall on the sea. They're fishermen and they're terrified. That should tell you how bad it was. They're like, where's Jesus? He's getting a nap in the bottom of the boat. And they go to him and they say, Lord, what do they say? Don't you care that we're about to perish? They were afraid that they were going to die. Sometimes it shows up like anxiousness like that. But other times in the disciples' life, their anxious misunderstandings of Jesus show up as a really, a really purposeful busyness and even a really powerful anger. How does it show up as a really purposeful busyness? Well, think about it. They're overconfident when they return from proclaiming the kingdom in Luke 10. And they say, uh, like, Jesus has sent out the 72 apostles. They come back and he says, tell me how it was, boys. And they say, Lord, it's amazing. Even the spirits are subject to us. And Jesus has this line that says, 
I remember watching Satan fall from heaven. And then what does he say after that? Yet don't put your hope in the fact that the spirits are subject to you. But let your hope rest in the fact that your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. Put your hope in what God can do for you, not what you can do for God. How does it show up when they're angry? It shows up uh, later on, earlier in Luke's gospel. They're passing through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans, they they, uh, reject Jesus' invitation to come. They're like, no, we don't want you to come. And two disciples, they, they, they look at Jesus, they're like, Lord, do you, want us, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Like, they're angry that these Samaritans have rejected the Messiah, and they have so misinterpreted the magnificent kingly promises of a conquering Messiah that they think it entitles them to refuse mercy to people who reject Jesus. It shows up as anger. Fear shows up as anger there. It's easy to look at all of these false expectations and to pick on the disciples, but what about you? What are the false pictures of Jesus that you have picked up on over the years? The ways that Jesus meets us in the truth of who He is, and yet we still fall prey to that same kind of fear that can show up as busyness, it can show up as anger at those who reject Jesus, or a world that's hostile towards the purposes of Jesus, a lack of charity towards non-believers. Are you mad when people reject Jesus? Do you fear a hostile world's intentions to ruin our society? And does it make you angry for them because of how afraid you are that it means you might suffer? Or what about your work in the church, do you confuse the Lord's kind use of our meager gifts with the idea that the show can't go on without you? Or are you so overwhelmed at your own sense of, I have very meager gifts to offer. How could I offer anything to serve this king? Because what will people think of me if I mess up? You see how that anxiousness infected the disciples? It's a similar anxiety that shows up in our lives. And wherever we find ourselves in this kind of anxiousness in this evening, Jesus offers us incredible comfort in this passage. And that's the second point is, look at the comfort that our Savior gives. He says, first, like, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Look at what he's doing. He's putting himself on the same platform as the Lord God who they knew in heaven. And the impact of this statement is not, fellas, it's all going to be okay. Jesus is not the church lady who's telling you uh, that, that you just don't have enough faith, disciples. He is, he is saying, let not your hearts any longer be troubled. Because I am the one who you can trust, just like your heavenly Father who you know. Jesus is saying they have resources that they can depend on to help them find comfort. And in the face of their anxiousness at their abandonment, this is the equivalent of a father who drops to a knee with a sweet little three or four-year-old who's afraid that daddy's leaving and says, sweetie, it's going to be okay. Daddy knows what he's doing. You don't have to be afraid. You can trust me to be faithful. 
I'm here even if you can't see me, Jesus says. But there's a second comfort that he gives. He says there's actually comfort found in his absence. And he mentions in verses 2 through 4 the place that he's going to. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. You know, all of us have faced people who have told us that they're leaving in this life. And depending on what that person can mean, hey, I'm going down the road, I'm going to step out for a minute, or hey, I am, I'm going to be gone because I need some time for a couple weeks, or the more final sort of form of leaving, hey, I'm leaving, and I don't know if I'm going to come back. The disciples think it's that third one, when Jesus is really saying, fellas, I'm, I'm leaving, but I have every intention of returning because I'm going to the place that our Father has prepared for me to receive. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself so that where I am that you may be also. That word for take you to myself is the word for receive. When he's in the original languages, when it's using, Jesus is using these words, it's like someone who's going to a home to make it hospitable for someone to dwell in so he can receive his honored guests. And in this culture, the people who received were the sons, and they received all share of an inheritance that the Father gave. Jesus is saying, fellas, I'm actually going to receive what my Father has given me and to use it to bless you. That word for place is a word for home, for, for many rooms. It's, it's a place that echoes back to the very Garden of Eden. It touches on the ache the disciples would have known as God's people since Israel began, because since the Garden, mankind in Scripture had known no place to find rest in the presence of God. And what Jesus is saying is like, fellas, I'm going to prepare our home to receive what my Father would give me, to give you the fulfillment of what all of His Word has pointed to, a dwelling place for God to be your God and my God and for us to be His people. He gives them the comfort of Himself. He gives them the comfort of the shared place. Then He gives them the comfort of His true identity. I love Thomas in this passage. Because in verse 5, he is the Captain Obvious who says, Jesus, you say you're going to this place, but like, you're, you're assuming you've told us where you're going. And we don't know how to get there. And that's where Jesus throws down what is one of the most beautiful I am statements. And what he's, he, he, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thomas, you think I've not told you the way, but you misunderstand once again sweet disciple. I am the way. And as Jesus is saying this to his group of disciples, he has that three-part sort of statement that says he's the way. He's, he's the path that the Father has given back to himself. But he's also the pattern in the way for how God intends to work. And when Jesus says he's the way, 
It's an echo of an Old Testament promise that God made that we just read in Isaiah 40 that a way would be prepared in the wilderness. That was a promise given to God's people as they dwelt in exile to say, when you are in exile, you can expect that your Lord the King will actually make a way. And what God was saying to His people in the Old Testament is just like an ancient king would prepare a road when he visited his people in a special way, I, your king, will prepare a road and I will come to you again even though you feel like you are in the utter abandonment of this exile. Go home and read Isaiah 40 tonight and let Jesus' statement of the way echo to you because Jesus is saying, friends, I am the path that your father and my father was making. I am the king who was coming to his people. But Jesus is also using it in a way that says, I am the pattern for how life is meant to be lived. And to his disciples, they would have been familiar with uh, rabbinic teachers who talked about the way of following God as the way to a blessed life. And when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the pattern for how the Father blesses those who want to know him. And there's a great irony in that, isn't there? Because within 24 hours, this one who is the pattern of a blessed life will suffer death and torture and burial. And it should tell his disciples that as Jesus goes to those great lengths to redeem a people as the way maker, making a path in the desolate places, that he intends it to be a pattern for their life too. It will lead to blessing for his disciples because of who Jesus is in himself. And if they follow him on the road that he goes on and has provided Jesus is actually saying it is through suffering that he will actually become the confident Savior of the world. So you can be confident even if my path that I direct you on takes you through suffering too. He's offering him, these disciples, the fact that he is the way maker who goes away in order to come to them by providing a life of blessing that they have always looked for, which their anxious beliefs about him could not promise. And yet his way will pass through shame and embarrassment so that even as Jesus is humiliated and suffers, his disciples can be certain that when they are humiliated and suffer, they can take rest if it's for the sake of this king and with his name. But he's not just the way, he's the truth. One pastor I know talked about Jesus be the truth in building terms. Being true is a way that contractors refer to what is being built as level, square, and not crooked. The image of the true way would have echoed to the people in the room that God was building on Jesus a true foundation who was the fulfillment of all the promises God had given them. It's as if God is saying, here's the way that I really am, presented for you that you might observe me in my Son. 
And again, this was spoken by someone who in less than 24 hours would suffer and die for how he actually bore out the truth of who he was. And if that wasn't enough of comfort, he promises them that he is the one who is life itself. He comes and lays down the life he knows by the power of God's indestructible life in himself. And Jesus ties this together for him in saying in verse 7, the reason he is the life is because he is the one who by knowing him, we know the Father too. Because he is God in the flesh. Come for us and for our salvation to make a way to redeem sinful, fearful disciples like you and I. To have faith in a fearful world that even when it closes in around them like it is about to on him, they can take confidence because their life is actually blessed for the way it reflects the pattern of his blessed life. But Jesus doesn't just give them comfort. He offers qualifications of how absolute this comfort should be taken. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that sounds very exclusive. And for us who are Christians, it's easy for us to insist upon that exclusivity in a way that actually divorces it from the comfort that we're meant to derive from it. But when you take into account everything Jesus is saying, it's, it's much like what uh, happens between Jill Pole and Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia with the silver chair. Jill goes into Narnia and she comes face to face with Aslan and she finds herself incredibly thirsty in a wild place that she doesn't know where she is. But she's incredibly thirsty and driven by the sound of water all, the, all around her. Eventually to the point that she begins to search in the wilderness that she's been taken to for a stream for the sound of running water so she can drink it. But when she finds the stream, she's presented with a terrifying lion. That lion is Aslan. And she stops frozen in fear as she sees the majesty and magnificence of this lion who's crouching right in front of the stream sitting quietly, waiting for her to drink. And he says, are you not thirsty, said the lion. Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. Then Aslan says, drink. To which Jill responds, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at Aslan's motionless bulk, She realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But she was driven insane by the delicious rippling noise of the stream. Will you promise not to do anything to me? Jill says. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had actually come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, says the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. 
I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. We are like Jill, and we look on his invitation to survive with a suspicion that his magnificent glory means we can't trust his character. But if you understand the comfort of a Savior who's willing to suffer becoming the way for us and for our salvation, you can actually approach Him hoping that He will satisfy the, soul, the desire of your souls, knowing you'll be protected by His goodness, knowing that He is the one who actually intends to satisfy your thirst when you drink. And to hear Jesus make such absolute statements in the presence of men who are so afraid can make you wonder, similarly, if Jesus is really trustworthy. What's the proof that you can trust Jesus to fulfill the very things that He's saying if He is, within 24 hours, going to suffer and die? It's because Jesus is also troubled If you go back and you read the account of the triumphal entry, from the triumphal entry, I think, in John's gospel until now at at the upper room farewell discourse, John tells us three separate times in this week that Jesus himself was troubled. And that word for trouble is the same word that defines the anxieties of his disciples in this room. It's the same word because Jesus actually has talked several times about what is facing him. He says in Lazarus' tomb at the graveside that he was troubled when he saw what the tyranny of death had done to his friend. He said as he was going into the temple, I think, in John, that he was going to die and be crucified, and his soul was troubled at the thought of it. And even now, at the betrayal of Judas, after Judas walks out of the room in the upper room to go and betray him, Jesus himself is troubled with everything that his suffering is about to mean. And yet, who is he feeling for most? He's feeling for his disciples. He's feeling for you and for me in a world where it feels like he might abandon us. Where he has, in a sense, the strength of a felt absence in our lives from the way that our lives either face suffering or hostile circumstances or various trials of every sort. And in the face of a moment when the disciples should be giving him comfort, what is Jesus doing? He's offering them the comfort of not being troubled. He's not demanding that they sympathize with him. He's intent to help them drink from the stream of the truth of who he is so they can endure to the day where they see the fulfillment and realization of all of his promises. And that's the way that you and I know that we can trust Him even with our anxieties. And that's the truth that actually transforms our anxieties. 
Think about what we've talked about, the ways that our anxiousness shows up and how we follow Jesus. Fear. Don't you care, Lord? Well, here in Jesus in the upper room is the God of the universe who demonstrates that he cares by laying his life down that his disciples might find life in him. Anger at a hostile world. Here is a God who enters in to take on our flesh, to suffer the curse and condemnation of his enemies gladly and willingly that he might redeem them and the world that their curse has caused on his beautiful creation to be broken. Their busyness, our busyness. Jesus is a Savior who transforms our anxious busyness that we have to work and work and work for him to use us and for the kingdom to go on into a joyful rest because in him is the life that actually transforms us in the midst of resting in all of his promises while we faithfully fulfill what he's called us to do. And if you and I trust him in this way, he will bless us with his life on the simple promise of receiving and trusting him in faith. And the beautiful thing is that even when your faith fails you like it does the disciples, and you find yourself willfully abandoning him for all of the false expectations that you have on him, you actually have a Savior who has swallowed whole our faithfulness so that in him we can trace back the way to our God, the truth of how he intends to be faithful to us even when we fail him, and the life that can satisfy us even in the gnawing disappointment of our own failure. Friends, when we rest in Jesus in the promises that come from the full comfort of his identity, we'll be able to tolerate and endure in the face of his felt absence. May God bless our church with that kind of endurance as we trust him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have spoken and you have told us what is good in this passage that in a world that would tell us we have to fear humiliation and shame, we have to fear being the butt of the world's joke that our faith will fail us, we have to fear ways that we have to be active and at work if we're ever to feel at rest in your presence. In ways that we have to fear if you really care. You come and you speak to us in the midst of our broken hearts that have sought solace in false pictures of who you are. And you invite us to reorient ourselves around the truth of your identity as the Savior of the world tonight. Help our church and our community to be a place where we can drink deeply from the stream of who you are so that we might joyfully proclaim you and fearlessly wait for you to the day of your appearing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.